The Department of Defense Education Activity, or DODEA, employs 500 teachers for the children of service members stationed in Italy, Spain, Turkey, and Bahrain. The teachers, part of a bargaining unit called the Overseas Federation of Teachers, says it hasn't had a new contract in 28 years. Here with what they'd like to have happen, the union president, Linda Hogan. Ms. Hogan, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate this time to speak with you. You are in Washington, D.C. now, and for the purposes of trying to establish something with the DOD, tell us what's going on here. I'm here in Washington, D.C. We were just recently in Vicenza, Italy, and we are attempting to negotiate a new contract with Department of Defense, and that's why I'm, I'm here for that reason. And you've been operating without a contract since when? We, we are still operating under our old contract that was written 28 years ago, We're still operating under that one, but we are working on the new contract that DODIA has asked us for, and that's what we're working on right now and having a difficult time with it, I would say. Well, did you just wake up 28 years later and say, gosh, we probably should get a new contract, or has this back and forth been going on for some time? We've been negotiating this contract for over a year, but we didn't just wake up and all of a sudden say that. Things changed over the last few years, starting during the Trump administration. And I, I'm sure you're aware of there was there were many civilians uh, working under Trump that did not support union, and it, and it hasn't been the same collaborative, respectful relationship since that time. But it was during that time when they in, they requested that we open our contract and negotiate a new one. All right, so some good and bad news, I guess, in that particular era. And who do you specifically negotiate with? I negotiate directly with. DODIA, Department of Defense Education Activity. I negotiate directly with uh, labor relations people that are stationed here and that work here in D.C. All right. And just getting back to who's covered here, Italy, Spain, Turkey, and Bahrain, what about all the other countries DODIA operates in? Those are under another union. And we're only dealing with, I only deal with about the 570 educators I have in my district, which is those four countries. And by the way, where are you stationed yourself? I live in Turkey. Wow. What's it like, by the way, we'll get back to the bargaining, but what's it like teaching American kids in Turkey? You know, it's actually like they're, they're children anywhere you go. And, and it's just like teaching anywhere in the United States. These are American children who want the best from their teachers and, you know, want to grow and learn. And actually, I don't find it any different. It's very different living in a foreign country. That part is very different. But the children are the same. They're children. Yes, indeed. And let's get back to the contract now. I presume that pay and uh, related benefits have gone up as they have for all federal employees over the years. So what is it specifically that's at issue in this contract negotiation? We are not negotiating pay, but we are negotiating some very important issues to teachers. Um, One is the preparation time they need. The other one is lunch time. But, you know, most importantly, when we first started this contract, we asked the teachers, we reached out to them and say, what is most important to you? What would you like us to get as we have to negotiate this new contract? And the number one thing they asked for, Tom, was respect and trust, that they are doing everything they can for the students that they work with every single day. And they don't feel like they have the respect that they deserve. Well, how do you get that into a contract clause, respect and that sort of thing? Well, actually, we, have, we are working on that. It's in our preamble. We actually added a section in our preamble. We actually got it in that talks about respect for teachers. But, you know, just getting it in a contract does not mean teachers get the respect they deserve. And that's going to show up in other ways. And what we're fighting for at this time right now for these next two weeks is 
preparation time and the lunch time that these teachers need to continue doing the work that they've been doing all along. We're speaking with Linda Hogan. She's president of the Overseas Federation of Teachers, part of the American Federation of Teachers. Let's talk about preparation time. That is time when to do what? Preparation time is the time when teachers have um, prepare for their lessons for the day. It's a critical time. It's when they plan. It's when they grade papers. It's when they work on everything they need to do to individualize instruction for the students they are serving. Our military-connected families arrive overseas from everywhere in the U.S., and they only remain with us for two to four years. And In fact, in Ankara, it's two years. But teachers work with all the students from wherever they are educationally and move them forward, which is something that doesn't happen in the stateside schools. We know the parents are very concerned about, and we know that, about the possibility of, of losing that prep time because they're aware that the teachers use this time to move their child, Johnny, forward wherever they're at in educationally and move them forward to be the best that they can be. So this prep time is critical for our teachers. So you're trying to get more prep time into, say, an eight-hour shift, and where would that time come We're from? We're trying to get We're trying to get prep time in no matter what, Tom. The problem is if we don't get prep time in our contract, we're not going to get it. So if they say we have prep time and we don't have it in our contract, then they can just use the prep time for anything they want. That's why it's critical to be spelled out in our contract. Right now we have prep time that's been in our contract for 28 years, but we're not finding the same positive um, way going forward with our prep time that we had for 28 years. So, in other words, there's a take-back, maybe, gambit happening from the DoDEA side? Absolutely, Tom. Yes, there's, there's a huge take-back with, with prep time, with uh, lunch time, with several things like that, that to us really show respect for our teachers. Yeah, let's talk about lunchtime um, for a minute. What time do you feel you need in a day, and what are they offering? Well, right now, they're offering an unpaid lunchtime. In other words, they want to increase our day by the 30 minutes they want to give us for lunch which is not what we have presently. And, you know, for the majority of our teachers, this lunchtime is probably, I can tell you, speaking from uh, as a teacher myself, this lunchtime is most likely for many teachers the only time they can use the restroom during the day. We're not like civilian workers. We have a 15-minute prep or 15-minute break that we can go use the restroom. It doesn't work that way when you're teaching children. And this is lunchtime, 30 minutes is most likely the only time they can use the restroom and scarf down a few bites of food of their lunch before they have to go back and get their students again. And they, they don't want to give us this paid lunchtime within our, within our duty day. Wow. So I guess the reason that they wanted to reopen the contract is becoming increasingly clear. I'm trying Absolutely. to understand how they would benefit by extending that day with unpaid. I'm just imagining what it is no, they're trying to drive at. I would agree with you. In fact, one of the things I want to say for our teachers is DoDEA has one of the best test scores in the nation, um, and, and they know it currently right now. They brag about it. You, you'll read it in the news that they have these high test scores, and we want to continue that. Reading scores of the DoDEA fourth graders and eighth graders, I can tell you, overall are higher than any other state in the nation, higher. And why would we want to change what has been working so well? In fact, during COVID, when our teachers worked so hard to continue lessons, to teach when other schools were, were closed down, to service our students even virtually, we found, they found with test scores that our students did not lose the progress that they lost in other schools in the States. And so then my question to you is, yeah, Tom, why would they want to change this? Why would they want to take what's been working so well all these years? I don't know. 
And you're in Washington once again. How long do you expect these negotiations to take? Well, we've been we've been negotiating this contract for over a year now. We're here for two weeks. I will tell you this is this is important. Until the last two the last round, which was in Vicenza, we were not doing very well at all. But what happened was, and this is when you think about it, how how bad the situation had to be, the tense it was between the Union Jodia has been so fraught over the last several months that eleven members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee sent a letter last month to Dodia Director Tom Brady urging him to bargain in good faith and advance proposals that both parties can, we can negotiate. That letter, I have to tell you, that letter made an impact, I think, on negotiations and on Tom Brady, because things have picked up in the last round. And we're, we're getting articles completed and, and tentatively agreed to that we were not getting before. But why would it take a letter from the Armed Forces Committee to get what we should be getting anyhow? Well, maybe because they control the budget. Well, that's probably true. And uh, whatever the reason is, I will tell you I'm very grateful that that happened. Because until that letter went out, we were, we, I was actually you know, very unsure of what was going to happen with our contract because we were not getting anywhere. Linda Hogan is president of the Overseas Federation of Teachers, part of the American Federation of Teachers. Thanks so much for joining me and good luck on getting a contract. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate your time today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. 
you've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, so not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, 
Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.